All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Just News. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Yep, it's the day after the Sussman verdict came down. You're right. Michael Sussman, the former Clinton campaign lawyer, acquitted by a jury after just six hours of deliberations. The jury concluded that he did not commit a federal felony by lying to the FBI. That doesn't mean that he didn't give inaccurate information to the FBI. It's pretty clear he did. He said he didn't do it on behalf of a client. In one case, he's at the FBI. In another case, in the Congress, he said he did. His text messages seem to suggest that he told the FBI clearly he was giving this information not on behalf of any client, yet his billing records show he billed most of the work for the research to the Clinton campaign. So people are saying, well, how can that be? How can that be? How can someone clearly give a false statement to the FBI and not pay a penalty, especially when you saw what happened to Mike Flynn? Right? That's what people will say. I have been saying for more than a week now, ever since the moment that the Durham team had to introduce evidence that the FBI itself lied about the same allegations. That's right. It lied to its own agents. The agents working the case were lied to by supervisors and told that this information, this evidence of an Alpha Bank secret computer connection that gave Donald Trump direct access to the Kremlin, something, by the way, that turned out to be totally bogus that it came from the Justice Department. That wasn't true. You know where it came from? It came from a private attorney tied to Hillary Clinton and to a computer executive supporting Hillary Clinton. So we know at that moment that the jurors have to be thinking to themselves, well, if the FBI was lying about it and they aren't being charged, they aren't being punished, why should we convict this man? And I think that is probably the reason more than any other why the jury came back with an innocent verdict. And the reason I believe that, not only was instinct in watching it and watching the jury's reaction, but also seeing what the forewoman of the grand jury told reporters outside the courtroom afterwards. This is what she said. I don't think it should have been prosecuted, the jury forewoman said. There are bigger things that affect the nation than a possible lie to the FBI. She's even acknowledging it was possible there was a lie to the FBI. She just doesn't think it was worth her time. It wasn't worth bringing the case in federal court and tying up jurors' times. Now, that affirms what I believe all along, that the jury heard that and said, uh, you know what? I don't buy it. This doesn't rise to a crime. Why are we having this? Particularly if the FBI was lying about it too. And wait, some of these FBI guys that came here are under investigation. What's going on here? So I think at the end of the day, this reminds us of something else that is really a truism in America. It wasn't this way. When I first came to Washington in the 90s, I remember the outrage, the moral and legal outrage about Bill Clinton lying to a deposition in the Paula Jones case. He eventually was impeached for that over a lie. But over the last 30 years, Americans have become very cynical and they see lying as a norm for Washington, for politicians. And that makes punishing a lie or a falsehood much, much harder. And I I don't take my word that this is just my gut instinct. There wasn't a remarkable Newsweek poll done in October 2020. By the way, just a few weeks before Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden in an election where a lie, the claim that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, not a true laptop, 
clearly impacted voters, right? That, that lie. But here's what that Newsweek poll showed. At least 54% of Americans agreed with the statement that lying has become acceptable in American politics. In other words, it's no big deal. So as you sit back and you look at this, sure, we're going to talk about the dual standards of justice again. I think that has been pretty well made. People will say, well, he did tell a falsehood. I think that jurors' comments speak volumes to the state of Americans' belief in their government and their political leaders. They believe more than likely they're liars, and they don't want to spend a lot of time punishing that. I guess they've come to accept the truth doesn't quite matter. And that is exactly what I think the verdict says about the Sesame trial. Now, we've got an incredible, incredible lineup for you today. Two all-star guests, both in the news right now. First up, Peter Navarro, the former Trump advisor. Yes, he's under subpoena from the Congressional January 6th Commission. He's defying that subpoena. He's under criminal investigation by the Justice Department for criminal contempt for defying that subpoena. And he's now sued the Congress, saying that the subpoena is not enforceable because the January 6th Commission isn't appropriately convened under the rules of Congress. And basically, the commission doesn't even comply with Congress's rules, therefore it can't enforce a subpoena. We're going to talk to him about that lawsuit and all that lies ahead. He'll be up first, then we'll come back and have a great conversation with someone who is doing some really amazing work. His name is Paul Chesser, and he has done some great work on woke corporations. He has a project that he's doing on behalf of the National Legal and Policy Center, a nonprofit that does great investigative work in Washington. He has been confronting corporations about their liberal biased policies at their board meetings, at their investor meetings, filing complaints, ethics complaints. He's making a difference using the process within the boardroom to try to get balance and to try to tell corporations, stick to your product, stick to making investments, stick to getting returns on investment for your investors and stay out of politics. Paul Chester is going to do some great work. He's the corporate integrity project leader for the National Legal Policy Center, and he's going to tell us a lot about what he's been doing at board meetings. A really fun story. That's what we got coming up for you. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, first up, Peter Navarro. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens 
can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, Thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. All right, folks, I'm so glad to have this next guest on the show, Peter Navarro. You see him every day on Real America's Voice on War Room, one of the most important advisors to President Trump during the Trump years, an expert on China, and now fighting back against the January 6th committee, which has subpoenaed him, referred him to the Justice Department. Peter, welcome to the show. John, my friend, uh, how are you? These are, uh, as the Chinese curse says, interesting times for the Republic. <laughs> that they are. And... Uh, Yes, I am in the uh, crosshairs of uh, a Democrat-controlled mob that has weaponized the investigatory powers uh, of Congress uh, in a way which um, threatens, I think, um, a lot of what we hold dear in this republic. So uh, I'm standing up to them as they try to coerce me into... uh, uh, doing uh, things that um, I should not be compelled to do, and that's kind of where things stand. Yeah, this is an important line of uh, inquiry that you've made in your lawsuit. So they, let me see if I understand this correctly and then have you explain it. It appears that the argument is that this committee didn't follow Congress's rules for being a lawful committee, therefore it has no authority to enforce a subpoena. Do I have that right in layman's terms? In layman's terms, that is correct. Uh, the legislative history of the what's called the Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th Attack on Capitol Hill. That's its formal title. I just call it the Kangaroo Committee. <laughs> yes, um, you do. I've you heard know, you call that before. John, <laughs> originally, John, there was supposed to be a commission. Right. And there was a bill uh, that was sponsored in both chambers. So this would be a bicameral, bipartisan commission to investigate January 6th. It was going to have five Democrats and five Republicans, so it was evenly split, Democrat chair, Republican vice chair. Right. And I think that's something that that President Trump would have uh, gladly cooperated with because there are some real issues um, that uh, folks on our side of the fence really want to get to the bottom of, such as um, did the FBI have informants uh, that helped instigate the violence. There seems to be some evidence of that. Was the BLM and Antifa involved? Why did Nancy Pelosi leave the perimeter so unguarded? Why did the feckless Department of Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, have the National Guard at such a far distance that they couldn't really help? Um, but this commission, this bipartisan bicameral commission, um, was not authorized by Congress. It failed in a filibuster in, um, in the Senate. So um, what happened was Nancy Pelosi formed what she calls herself an unprecedented kangaroo committee. Uh, I ca- it's, it's, the kangaroos, basically you've got seven Democrats and two rhino Republicans in Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and it's, it's, it's an illegal, uh, it's a committee issuing illegal and unenforceable subpoenas because it violates the rules both of the House to issue subpoenas and its own authorizing resolution to wit. Um, by House Resolution 8 in the last, uh, for this Congress, you're supposed to have what's called a ranking minority member. Uh, that is to say a right. ranking member from the Republican Party on the committee to consult with the chair, Democrat Benny Thompson, before you issue subpoenas. Um, McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader of the House, the Republican, um, 
was supposed to be allowed to put on five members onto this committee uh, in consultation with Pelosi, but she refused to seat any of the five, including the ranking member. Instead, without consultation, John, she just put Cheney and Kinzinger on. And so we're in this weird situation where this committee has no ranking member and therefore can't issue lawful subpoenas. Um, and at the same time, it has the wrong number of members, nine instead of 13. It's got a, a skewed partisan majority on it. And what, to me, one of the fascinating things was to kind of go over the, the legislative history of the committee members themselves. I mean, look, there's seven Democrats who over the last more than five years since Donald Trump got elected in 2016 have tried to weaponize Congress's investigatory powers to remove Trump from office, right? That's, in, in doing so, they violated the separation of powers because they're acting in a judicial function. But, but to just refresh everybody's memory, started with a now discredited Russia hoax from the very get-go in 2016, two discredited impeachment trials. There were three uh, House resolutions to remove Trump from office uh, on the basis of, of mental or physical grounds. And all of these things were perpetrated by the key members of the committee, Jamie Raskin, um, Adam Schiff, kind of stand out, Benny Thompson, um, Luria, Aguilar, all, Stephanie Murphy, all of these people, virulently anti-Trump. And you, what, what they're doing, John, rather than uh, legitimately investigating January 6th as a means of pursuing a legislative function, they're basically trying to build a criminal case against Trump so that he can't run for president in 2024. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the de facto mission now of this kangaroo committee. So I've challenged them on uh, the grounds that they're not duly authorized or properly constituted, I've challenged them on uh, a violation of the separation of powers, um, a viol uh, and, and by extension uh, accused them of violating the Bill of Attainder Clause. What is that? That is the, in, the, in the Constitution, which pr prohibits uh, Congress from passing and taking actions uh, designed to punish people like myself and it dates back to the days when the old english parliament used to do that and that's one of the reasons why uh, america is america today and not a british colony we, we we don't put up with that nonsense and then the most important thing about the case john which which is so fascinating to me is is executive privilege uh and it's it's companion testimonial immunity for senior white advisors exists as a way of ensuring that presidents get candid information from advisors, right? And this goes, executive privilege goes all the way back to George Washington. Case law supports it. Um, it's qualified after the Watergate era only in criminal cases. But right. these are two very important institutions for our republic. And when I, um, when I refused to comply with the committee subpoena on the basis of executive privilege and testimony immunity, the committee came up with this, this absolutely dangerous and fanciful notion of having the incumbent President Joe Biden strip President Trump of his executive privilege so that I would no longer be uh, covered by that and strip me directly of testimonial immunity. You can't do that. There's no what they call settled law in support of that. You know, I'm an economist, but I have some training in the law based on my regulatory economics days. Right. Um, and to me, you know, reading the case law, it's like this is in an open and, sh open and shut case. This is an open and shut case. What the committee is doing is, uh, is what they say, ultra virus, um, unenforceable, and, and illegal. And so the subpoena they issued to me is unlawful. The House Resolution N-37 they passed uh, ordering, uh, directing the U.S. attorney to hold me in contempt is unlawful. And the latest thing is I get this grand jury subpoena from, um, from the um, 
uh, U.S. attorney, right. uh, basically demanding that I violate executive privilege and hand over some documents. It's like, so this is where we stand. And um, uh, look, here's the thing. If they win this, if they win this, it's going to be a pure victory. Because if they win this, well, what it will mean is when the Republicans take back the House in 2022 and Trump's back in the White House in 2024, we're going to play the same damn game. I mean, they, they, they invite us to. We'll be subpoenaing them left and right, holding them in contempt. Uh, there will be no uh, protection and executive privilege. And it will be, a, you know, a pox on their house because of what they did. I don't want that. That's not good for the republic. But that's what they're inviting in their kind of myopic quest to stop Trump. Yeah. No, it, listen, it is about Trump, right? It's been going on since Russia collusion in the summer of 2016, yep. and it's the same process, right? It's law enforcement each time yeah. trying to settle a political and, score. But by the way, I would be remiss here, and I would appeal now to your listeners. Uh, the, the new book I have written, yeah. which is up on Amazon right now, uh, it's called Taking Back Trump's America, Taking Back Trump's America on Amazon, and its subtitle is Why We Lost the White House and How We'll Win It Back. I mentioned this book in the context of this interview because this book is going to be so important to making damn sure that we're able to take back the House in 22 and take back the White House in 2024 so we don't have to put up with this weaponization by a Democrat Congress of, of Congress's investigatory right. powers. And by the way, I think if you ask kind of the the average deplorable in the street, of which I associate myself closely <laughs> with, of course, um, yeah. they they are concerned right now about the cost of gasoline yep. and baby formula, yep. um, maybe and, a food shortage uh, in the offing, the yeah. economy, uh, and and other things, um, and the last thing, literally last thing on their mind. Is the, is the Democrats' little uh, little game they're playing on Capitol Hill in a Congress which has an approval rating, which is about the same as Joe Biden's, and it's far hard to get that low. Yeah, yeah, you ain't kidding. You, you're also, the players on this are players that have not shown good faith in earlier investigations. Chairman Schiff is the sidekick to Chairman Thompson, uh, gave us a lot of the false information that became a Russia collusion. Do you have any sense that if Congress got the information it wanted, that it would do a fair job, that it would do an honest accounting of what's in the documents or in your testimony? Of course not. Um, what they're trying to do is build a criminal case against Donald Trump, which on its face is a violation of the separation of powers. I mean, people... Please understand, whoever's listening to this right now, okay? Congress does not have, no matter what you've seen with Watergate hearings or this, that, the other, whatever you've seen, like Congress does not have the power to investigate for criminal punitive purposes. That's the job of the judiciary. Right. It's the job of the Department of Justice. It's not the job of Congress. And one of the, one of the key aspects of my lawsuit is to force this issue to the Supreme Court. They're, they're, the controversy, as they say in legal terms, is whether Congress can pursue an illegitimate judicial function behind the mask of a, a facially valid legislative function. Right. Translation, John, it's like, can, can, they, can they act as judge, jury, and executioner while claiming that they're simply uh, trying to get to the bottom of something so that they can pass new rules to fix it. Yeah, so no, that's, that's it. They're using their oversight of possibility to build a dossier sure. to send to the Justice Department, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, now, your subpoena that you got from the uh, Justice Department, what makes you think that the ultimate target is Donald Trump? Because one of the things that was very unusual about the subpoena is they specifically mentioned communications between myself and the president mm -hmm. and um and and the, they they asked for the material basically that the committee had asked for in their documentations but they went out of their way to 
mentioned President Trump's name. And that was both an assault on executive privilege, but also a tell that President Trump is a likely target um, of the committee's uh, investigation. Look, this is this is collusion. Yeah. The Congress is colluding with the White House, is colluding with the Department of Justice, is colluding with the FBI. You know, memo to the FBI, you don't have to wake me up in the morning, banging and kicking down my door to give me a subpoena. You know, just just <laughs> come a little later or give me a call. You don't, I mean, that kind of terrorism. Like, And by the way, folks who are listening right now, they're not coming for me. They're coming for you. They will get to you. If they get away with this kind of stuff, they will get to you. That That's what this is about. Now, there's a very specific allegation. It's interesting to see that subpoenas don't normally make allegations. Normally, they just request information. But Benny Thompson's uh, subpoenas are loaded with uh, innuendo, if not outright accusations. Very weird to see that in a subpoena. It's backfired yeah. on him because he obviously made a false allegation about um, a Bernie Carrick that had to apologize, say that was in, inaccurate, not true. But one of the allegations yeah. that are in the subpoena language, as I understand it from reading it, is uh, that you were ultimately trying to change the outcome of the November 20 presidential election. Were you, was that your motive when you were doing your research? Was your goal to change the outcome of the election? My mission, uh, and I talk about this in my book in Trump time, uh, within the context of what's called the Green Bay Packers sweep. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a uh, law, an electoral act, uh, dating back over 100 years, uh, that provides for the counting of votes on a state-by-state basis where the votes are in dispute. Um, as revealed by uh, requests on the floor of the, of the Congress. And all uh, I was trying to do was to make sure that only legal votes were counted in the election. Uh, and we had over 100 congressmen um, who were on board with this plan, over 100. So I guess all of those people are guilty, Benny, of whatever it is you think we were trying to do. Uh, but all we were trying to do is is to make sure only legal votes were counted. Yeah. That's it. You weren't trying all to overturn the election. You were trying to make sure that the processes get, were followed. Get the legal votes counted. Let's let's, right. let's see what happens after you count the legal votes. Yeah. Now I want to point out something because I I've, I've taken a great look at both of your books. I love Trump Time and and Taking Back Trump's America. The introduction of your book says we lost the White House. Are you under some illusion that the election is still unsettled or something? Or are you willing to acknowledge that, hey, this is water under the illusion? bridge? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I think the preponderance of evidence right now uh, shows that the election was likely stolen. Yep. And one of the one of the troubling aspects um, I see in the media all the time is these blanket statements. Yeah, they're very sweeping. Uh, as if it were fact that uh that that statements to saying that the election was anything other than fair uh are are lies yeah. you know the big lie whatever and I, I if you're a if you're a good journalist the best you can say at this point is that the election remains disputed yeah. and and in my judgment the evidence i have seen across the six battleground states where the election was determined is that this election was likely stolen and that we still urgently need to get to the bottom of this. And, and look, I mean, the committee, this, this kangaroo committee starts off on a false note by asserting that uh, the election uh, was fair and any claims to the contrary are false. I mean, if, if you're making that claim, at the outset, you've come to a premature conclusion, and, and therefore you've biased that uh, kangaroo committee from the outset. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. And listen, there are courts that have concluded, like in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, that the actual tactics that were used for people to vote were unlawful, right? It was unlawful for people in Wisconsin, by the way, tens of thousands of them to vote 
um, uh, absentee at home claiming they had a disability because they were afraid to go outside with COVID. Being fear of COVID is not a disability, the courts concluded. Pennsylvania said there was no basis for doing mail-in votes, uh, ballots to everyone without excuses, that the Constitution has to be changed. There are literally court rulings, but the, the media just gloss over these very significant court rulings that call into question the conduct of the election in two or three of the most important battleground states. It's it's remarkable how it gets glossed over in the media every day. Um, how does this play out, Peter? we got about a couple minutes left. How does this play out for you? I mean, you've got the lawsuit. It'll work its way to the courts. You're intent on taking this all the way to the Supreme Court, correct? Well, the worst case scenario is that they put me in prison for a year and fine me $100,000. That's that's uh, the kind of terrorism and coercion that this committee and the Justice Department are engaged in. Um, what I argue in my lawsuit is that it was improper for them to hold me in contempt to begin with right. because uh, they did not pursue what's called in case law the least burdensome, burdensome alternatives. Um, the most burdensome alternative, the most punitive, is, is to file a criminal contempt charge and, and prosecute me. Uh, according to uh, one of the rulings in the Nixon case, um, they, sh- they should pursue lesser burdensome alternatives. One would be to simply subpoena the records they're asking me to turn over. Uh, that would be the easiest way since they have that subpoena power. The second least burdensome alternative would be to file a civil suit rather than a criminal suit. Uh, and that was done um, in, a, in a case uh, involving, um, I think it was Josh Bolton and, and Helen Myers uh, back in the Bush administration. Uh, but they didn't do that. So uh, the boss likes to say, let's see what happens. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Let me ask I you a provocative question because it's at the heart of this whole thing. Did you ever see President Trump commit a crime in connection with January 6th? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they want to know, right? So let's get it out of yeah, town. Well, I, I, yeah, I guess what, what they want to know. But, but what, whatever interactions I have with the president yep. one way or the other um, is, is uh, between me and the president. Yeah. I've always been consistent about that. Right. So, uh, and, and no one should read anything into that answer. Right. Uh, yeah. just, You're trying to preserve the, the privilege that every president that's, is supposed to enjoy. That's the kind of crap that, that, yeah. that gets pulled all the time. It's like, yeah. Oh, that's all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think, I think the, the, the point that, that that's applicable here is that leading into January 6th, uh, there was a reasonable presumption that the election um, was racked by fraud and that there were uh, enough illegal votes counted to sway that election and so that it was important to try uh, to look at uh, the, the votes and, and, and sort that out, which is what uh, Mike Pence was supposed to do before he stuck a knife in the back of the president in his little Shakespearean tragedy of playing, you know, his et tu brute moment. Um, and Pence, by the way, you know, as a historical character, he and his, his chief of staff, Mark Short, I mean, they, they, they will go down... Um, as the Judases of, of the White House, because uh, both Pence and Short had an obligation prior to January 6th to share with the president and Pat Cipollone, White House legal counsel, the uh, flawed legal opinion that Pence and Short and Greg Jacob, their attorney, had, had concocted uh, that, that Pence would use uh, to not move forward with the, the Green Bay Packers sweep, yep. which would have got us to counting the legal votes. So um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of unanswered questions here. And for those of you who think presidential elections don't get stolen, let me just remind you of uh, 
Nixon Kennedy, um, it's, it, his, his, it took decades. Uh, but at this point, historians now generally agree that Kennedy stole it from Nixon, flat out. And that was a relatively simple steal involving uh, ghost voters in yeah. Illinois right, right. and some shenanigans in Texas. This, this, this is, <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this is the most elaborate and sophisticated steal by the Democrats um, in in our republic's history. Um, but steal it, they likely did, and uh, I think we need to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, the the questions still aren't resolved. I think we have a lot more illumination about things that we know now are certain, right? We know for sure that uh, illegal tactics were used in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania, that they were unlawful, that there was no legal basis for them to allow the type of voting that occurred in those states. Those are significant things. In any other era of journalism, wouldn't those be the headlines right now? Uh, You know, uh, when I, you know, to that point, John, when I uh, was getting ready to file a lawsuit, which I did uh, this last Tuesday, I sent out the suit uh, with an embargo, a press embargo, uh, last week, the week prior, uh, to about 20 reporters on the grounds that they would respect the embargo. And there was only one newspaper that that did um, what I consider to be uh, kind of old-style report the facts, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, and and it was uh, the Daily Mail. And they did a quite excellent, uh, fair reporting of the events that were transpiring. Okay? That's journalism. Okay? Yeah. Opinions belong in the op-ed section. Yep, that's not right. In, in, you know, yeah, not, in, not in news articles. And that, to me, that said a lot about the state of American journalism. Yeah. Now, listen, we've seen a, a, an enormous decline in it over the last six, seven years. And the Sussman yeah. trial gave us some more examples of really bad reporting, didn't it? Yep. So, Peter, we're going to be watching this closely. This lawsuit is very important. Uh, It raises issues that other people have not yet raised. If Congress is going to issue a subpoena, it should at least abide by its own rules. I think that's one of the arguments a lot of common sense people would say. And the second is this question of executive privilege has to be decided. And that's probably going to end up at the Supreme Court. So a very important legal uh, 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 case that you've now uh, brought before the American people. We're going to be tracking it here. Uh, thank you, John. And, and remember, folks out there, taking back Trump's America on yep, Amazon. On Amazon. Help uh, me help you and the Republic uh, go order that today. And uh, it's going to be an important part of uh, the whole mission of taking back the House and the White House. Yeah, the hardcover comes out, what, in September, right? Yeah. Very exciting, folks. get it pre-ordered now. Thanks. Get in line now. Be first. It's an important read, uh, as all of Peter's work is. Peter, honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time today. All right, friend. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, an interesting conversation about the effort in woke corporations in America and uh, one man's mission to get important issues in front of the investor committees, in front of the board of directors. A really fascinating interview coming up in just a few seconds, right after this commercial break. Hey folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title in your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today 
and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. So happy to welcome this next guest. He's doing such important work in the corporate space. Everyone's worried about woke corporations, values not being aligned, people in corporations focusing on politics, not on investment services and and uh, products, which is what a lot of people think corporations to stick to. Uh, joining me right now, Paul Chester, Director of the Corporate Integrity Project at the National Legal and Policy Center. Paul, great to have you on board today. Good to be with you, John. You're doing some amazing work, and I want to really talk about the impact you're beginning to have in boardroom meetings, investor meetings. But before we do, I wonder if you could just spend a few seconds reintroducing people. They've heard of it before, seen it, but what the National Legal and Policy Center does and specifically what your corporate integrity project within the group is doing. Sure. Uh, well, National Legal and Policy Center has been around for over 30 years now. It was founded in, in 1991. And uh, they've, be, they've been more, probably more popular or well-known uh, regard to the, uh, their government integrity project. And right. They've, they've uh, exposed a lot of, uh, you know, corruption and so forth, uh, going back to the, to the Keating Five scandal. Uh, you know, they were a big part of uh, getting the Senate Ethics Committee on, onto that. But uh, We've got basically two arms, the Government Integrity Project, which has done a lot recently on on the BLM and buying of the mansions with uh, with their donations and so forth. We've done, Tom Anderson has done great work on that. Sure. My side of things is the Corporate Integrity Project. We've always done a little bit of this, you know, going back to 2005, but our president, uh, Peter Flaherty, you know, he has to run a whole organization and, and uh, the, you know, he didn't have a lot of bandwidth to do it, but he, he would bring resolutions a few every year. But, you know, recently, as we all see, there's a greater appetite for conservatives to get more involved in the corporate integrity side of things. So I was brought on, uh, actually, I've been with the organization uh, part-time since, uh, you know, for about 12 years, but Peter decided to expand this effort and brought me on board full-time in October. And uh, right away, there were a bunch of corporate deadlines to file uh, resolutions for, and now we're in the heat of uh, proxy season, as they call it, where uh, we have to actually present our resolutions at these annual shareholder meetings. So that's what I've been uh, lockdown doing for the last couple of months. And, and you've been at some pretty important uh, board meetings, right? Uh, Amazon, Twitter, Meta among them. Uh, what has been the reaction to your presentations at those shareholder meetings? Well, you know, understanding if once you understand the process, you realize you don't get a response. First of all, these meetings are all now virtual because it's a legacy from, from what happened with COVID. They used to be in person. You used to go stand up on a, a platform and speak in a microphone and the and the CEO and the board would have to sit there and watch you beat up on them in most cases. But now it's just kind of faceless and, and, and less uh, less personal. But, uh, you know, we're not, no less uh, aggressive in, in our tr- attempt to hold uh, these companies accountable. And uh, you know, the, the nature of these things, whether you're a liberal group, and it's mostly the liberals who've been dominating these shareholder meetings, bringing climate type initiatives and and racial equity type initiatives and things like that. That that's you know the left has basically controlled these uh, shareholder meetings, and and as far as how many uh, resolutions get brought forth, um, but but whether it's them or or conservative. Uh, the boards always, almost always, uh, oppose the resolutions. And then when you have uh, these large institutional investors like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, who own the majority of the shares, and they're almost always in lockstep with the the directors, these are the proposals. They they get shot down, you know, more than not, probably more than ninety eight percent of the time. Uh, 
but nonetheless, you know, the left has been doing this and, and had great success at it for for uh, for years and years and years. And in, even though the individual resolutions have been shot down over the years, they've made great progress uh, in their efforts to get their their agenda items addressed to the point where we now see every corporation having a, an ESG or an environmental, social, and governance. Uh, uh, wing of their of their company for investor relations, uh, you know that wasn't the case, uh, you know, many years ago, uh, and 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 they feel the need to address, you know, having uh, limiting their carbon emissions and and just addressing these concerns of these liberal groups, and that's how we've ended up with uh, the boardrooms and the executive suites uh, being so. Uh, attentive and, and dominated by these these liberal concerns. So conservatives have, have fallen way behind in, in this kind of activity, as as you're everyone is seeing now. Uh, corporations are, are you know deeply influential in the whole political process. Uh, we could probably go into some some examples of that. Um, yeah. But now this year, conservatives are starting to show up. Us and our friends at the national. Center for Public Policy Research are, are are doing a lot of these resolutions this year, and you know half the battle is showing up. So that's it what is. we're doing. It's letting the it's yeah. letting the shareholders and the board members know that someone's paying attention, and that there's a whole swath of America that has a different view than maybe the liberals who've been dominating the conversation at these shareholder meetings. I want to walk through a couple of things because there's all sorts of different lines of attack that uh, you guys have taken, all of them designed to, you know, again, not, these aren't bogus attacks. These are really designed to uh, force good corporate behavior. And one of them starts with Twitter, right? You had Twitter. It hasn't done well financially as a, as a company. It's really never succeeded big as it. And over the last year, it tripled it's lobbying uh, and advocacy lobbying while you know being underwater a lot of the time. I think it went from like mm-hmm. 600,000 to 1.7 million in 2021. Um, what message did you deliver to Twitter at that shareholder meeting? Well, you know, a lot of these uh, resolutions, they're very restricted by SEC rules and, and you know, what you kind of things you can bring up. So what we brought up with Twitter was a lobbying expenditure disclosure uh, proposal um, you know, it sounds very, uh, you know, not ex- very exciting, but, you know, these proposals, even though they don't sound very exciting, once you show up at the meeting, you can kind of broaden what you talk about. And so that's what we did with Twitter with our lobbying request. And we, 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 you can, you can't force a company to do something in its day-to-day business to, to change its activities or behavior, but you can ask for a report. So we asked for a report. Tell us how you're lobbying. Uh, how much are you lobbying? We wanted an itemization. We wanted to know amounts that they're paying, uh, you know, for for federal government lobbying, which is in public reports, but also, you know, in, at the state level, you know, state by state, how much do they lobby? Uh, what what do they pay uh, associations uh, as far as, um, you know, industry wide uh, associations and, and what are those kinds of activities? So basically, we we asked Twitter for that report, but really the gist of what we were after was uh, calling Twitter to account for its uh, for its bias, for its censorship practices. Uh, we specifically called out their chief legal counsel, a woman named Vijaya Gade, uh, who who's now become much more well known than she probably ever wanted to be because uh, she was reportedly in tears when it was reported that Elon Musk was buying the company and taking yeah. it private. So, so, but she's, you know, she's their chief legal counsel and she signs all the lobbying reports to, you know, the Senate and the House. So in, in addition to her being, having that responsibility, she's also was acknowledged to be the chief censorship person uh, behind, uh, you know, the Hunter Biden story, the, the, the Hunter Biden laptop story, right. that Twitter censored uh, from the New York Post. And uh, and, you know, while they at the same time, they allow, uh, you know, the story about this 50 former national security officials that called it Russian disinformation that got wide circulation. So, you know, she was behind that. We called her out on it. You know, they Twitter's as far as Twitter's actual lobbying goes, they're lobbying for things that are just a progressive laundry list, Uh, you know, uh, immigration reform, voting access for minorities, policing reform, diversity and inclusion. And we we argue that this should not be the purview of a company that's supposed to be for private company 
making making a profit, and uh, and, and those those kind of things should be a, the purview of actress groups. So why are you spending 1.7 million dollars in 2021 for these, you know, activist group issues? Um, you know, that, that's what we had addressed with Twitter. Yeah, a very important argument. And a lot of the things that they were lobbying and really don't have an effect on the Twitter business model, right? They're society issues, but they're not really related to the core competency of the company or its core products. And I thought that that argument really resonated when, when you had the opportunity uh, to present it. A lot of the people we talked to today say, listen, they, and polling shows this too. People want companies to focus on their products, their services, and their return on investment to investors and stay out of politics. We don't go to companies for politics. We go to them for their products and services. And I think you've been very effective at delivering uh, that message. I want to take you to another one uh, that I think is really interesting, and that is Meta. Because again, there, like Twitter, there's been a lot of censorship, which is amazing because it's supposed to be a free speech platform. Um, What message do you want the Meta shareholders to hear? Meta or formerly Facebook, our resolution there uh, was a sim- you know, similar to the lobbying report we sought uh, with Twitter. We sought a, a disclosure for uh, Meta's uh, charitable donations. So we wanted them to itemize and list uh, who are they donating their you know, shareholder resources to, uh, what, what you know, nonprofit organizations or what have you, what causes were they, were they uh, donating to? Because these companies, you know, I, besides these big tech companies we're talking about today, you know, we're involved. We've got had resolutions for charitable disclosure with Wells Fargo and, and a whole bunch of other corporations. None of them want to say who they're donating to. They'll be very broad and, and general. Yeah, they're large categories, right? Categories, but they won't specify who they're giving to. They won't say if they gave to the BLM Global Network Foundation or or what have you. Uh, so we want that itemization because you know, as a prospective customer or as a shareholder might want to know. Yeah, you know, it'd be nice to look up and say, "Hey, uh, who have you donated to?" Or if you, you know, you're you know, you're Wells Fargo. I live in the Charlotte area. You're donating to our our local uh, homeless shelter. Well, let me go find out, you know, how much you gave to my local group. You know, why wouldn't you want uh, uh, people to be able to find that out pretty easily? So well, that's our kind of our, our one of our arguments for uh, these companies to disclose their charitable donations. For some reason, they don't want specificity. They just want to deliver the message they deliver. But, you know, in the context of Meta, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is, uh, you know, the chairman and CEO of, of Meta. And, you know, he, he donated out of his per he and his wife's personal foundation, they donated more than four hundred million dollars through a couple of uh, you know radical leftist NGOs to forget out the vote operations in heavily democratic districts in twenty twenty. So, you know, that kind of makes us wonder, okay, this is what Mark Zuckerberg and his wife did with their personal foundation. Did any corporate monies go towards things like that? Sure. You know, it, it raises the question. Um you know, and transparency is one of the goals here, right? Just they're they're not exactly. very transparent. Yeah, yeah, and I know that's you know that's a big hot topic for you, John. But absolutely, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, with these corporations, you know, you've got Mark Zuckerberg who owns the, a majority of the voting shares for Meta. You've got uh, with Alphabet. We may get to that later. You've got Larry uh, Page and Sergey Brin who own more than fifty percent of the shares uh, of that company. You know, they control, they can say, no, we're not going to do this. And, and it's like, what's the point of even have a sh- having a shareholder vote? And I would say, okay, Mark Zuckerberg, if you want this total control or the guys at Alphabet, why don't you be like Elon Musk and take your company's private and do it the right way instead of pretending you're a public company yet not wanting to be transparent about your activities? So, uh, you know, that's what we're, we address with Mark Zuckerberg, because, you know, in, in, in addition to, you know, not being transparent about their char- his charitable donations through Meta, you know, they've got their censorship regime that they, they've implemented. And, and he's Particularly got, related to COVID. You know, yeah. Yeah. With COVID, with uh, the Hunter Biden laptop right. story, they throttled back the sharing on that. Climate change. Uh he can he climate change. He conspired with Dr. Fauci uh, that there's evidence of that, that, that he was talking directly to Dr. Fauci about censoring any information that uh, that he didn't support. So 
So those that's what we, we addressed with Meta and with uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Uh, let me take you to one more across multiple corporations. A lot of these corporations are believed to have given uh, donations to the BLM Foundation. There's now a lot of concern about how that money has been converted. There are investigations such as the Indiana Attorney General uh, getting a full accountability of how much money corporate America gave to BLM and how it's been spent. How important is that to your overall project? Well, well, it's very important. We've we've cited it as examples right. in uh, many of our re- in resolutions now. You know, a handful of companies that we're we are shareholders in uh, did donate to the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. And there's all kinds of permutations of BLM and local chapters and that kind of thing. But the one that's been a problem and the most highly recognized and got the most donations, you know, upwards of I don't know, sixty to ninety million dollars is the one uh, run by Patrice Coolers and. Right. She has shown that she's been totally unaccountable with those funds. You know, they've had board members drop off, and it, it appears now she's the only one left to to be managing the the, the funds. And and as my organization, my counterpart uh, with our government integrity project, Tom Anderson, helped dig up in conjunction with the New York Post, a lot of that money went to buying mansions in what rich white neighborhoods, which yeah. really does not align with her uh, her stated Marxist. Uh, outlook yeah so you know one example of a company another big tech company that actually did give to blm and actually had it in its uh its uh matching program is amazon and jeff bezos the former chair well he's the chairman he's a former ceo of amazon said a couple years ago after the riots following the death of george floyd he said Black Lives Matter speaks to racism and disproportionate risk that black people face in our law enforcement and justice system, and my stance won't change. He, he literally told a, wow. uh, uh, somebody that on uh, Instagram. Well, two years later, after it was all revealed that BLM, how uh, BLM was unaccountable and, and, and pretty much corrupt uh, with regard to the funds it received from a lot of these companies, they took him out of the Amazon Smile program and and uh, and BLM also got uh, shut down in, in a couple of Western states because they weren't transparent about, uh, you know, their reporting and everything. California, and I believe the state of Washington uh, pro- prohibited them from raising funds in those states. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And it's hard to get a, a total sense of where the money comes from because it's so fragmented, the reporting. And that's why I think a lot of these uh, shareholder requests that you're making are hopefully going to create the sort of transparency. People get a more clear picture. All right, if you're going to give away money that otherwise could be returned to investors, let us know where it's going so we can make a judgment about that. I think that's really important. Now, people will say, all right, this is a lot of show. It doesn't have a lot of impact. It does. And I want to point to something I know you're very familiar with. Uh, Netflix has had a bad quarter or two. Uh, I think they lost over $400 million in, 200, uh, $400 million in revenues, 200000 in subscribers in less than 100 days. And uh, its CEO woke up and basically said, hey, employees, I don't care about your liberal views, or your conservative views. Suck it up. Our job is to put on the best programming possible, not to have a social engineering experiment here. Your reaction to a CEO who seems to have gotten the message you're trying to deliver? Well, you're right. Those are those are indications that are that are promising. Uh, you know, I don't think Reed Hastings is any less of a principled liberal. I mean, his his wife just gave a ton of money right. to uh, keep Chase Bowden or whatever his name is in San Francisco right. as the DA, protect him from the recall. So I'm sure they're, uh, he and his wife are like-minded still there. But, you know, as far as running a business, <laughs> maybe he's going to get, blo- he's going to get blockbustered. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know he, he's the one that slayed uh, blockbuster. Yeah, now, of course. Now Netflix is, Netflix is endangered. And uh, the thing that I th- find interesting there is a lot of this, uh, these corporations, uh, you know, bending the knee to the progressive agenda has been a lot, in, especially the big tech companies, has been in response to employees. It's like they're afraid of their employees. And what's what's really, I think, uh, redeeming about what Netflix did was they told their employees, if you don't like some of this programming, maybe Netflix isn't the place for you to work. Maybe you need to go work somewhere else. That has I have not seen that happen in a long time. Uh, that's more of what, you know, who's running the show of these companies? You know, is it is it the shareholders? Is it do, do, 
you know, I, I was wondering if any of these CEOs and, and uh, boards have any kind of backbone at all. And that's where Reed Hastings, the CEO and of, uh, of Netflix, showed some backbone and, and stood up for uh, uh, Dave Chappelle and yeah. uh, Ricky Gervais and, and, and their, uh, you know, very um, controversial but uh, impassioned and, and offensive to everybody. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Equal opportunists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's where I would say our side, our conservative side of things differs from how the liberals go about things. The liberal the liberal shareholder activists go in and they say, you need to adopt these liberal agenda items, cl- climate change, uh, <laughs> racial diversity. Our way or the highway, forth. right? Yeah. And us as conservatives, we just say, hey, just stay out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you you're trying to serve the greatest number of customers and shareholders in the country. We want you want their business. Like right. Michael Jordan said, Republicans wear sneakers, too, or buy sneakers. Yeah. too. They buy food. Uh, just they buy movies. and let let all that other political stuff be sorted out in these other forums. And uh, so important. Just do just to conduct business the best way you can. Paul, we just got about 30 seconds left. How do people follow the good work that you're doing at NLPC? Thanks. Uh, we are at nlpc.org, and uh, you get there, you'll see our homepage, you'll see our uh, our activism with regard to these corporations. We put a post up at every corporation we do a shareholder meeting yeah. uh, presentation at. We did Alphabet today and Walmart and Comcast. Today was a busy day. How about that? Well, this is important stuff, and as busy as it was, we really appreciate that you had made so much time for us. This is an important project you're working on, folks. Check it out, NLPC, NL, nlpc.org, and check out all the great work that uh, Paul is doing. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, John. All right, folks, we'll be right back after the commercial break to wrap things up for the day. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to Peter Navarro, Paul Chesser, for enlightening us on two very important issues, wokeism in the corporate America sector and, of course, the dispute about whether the January 6th Commission is really legitimately formed to do its investigative work. There are important issues about January 6th. You all know I believe there's a lot of wrongdoing that was committed that day. But one of the issues is not being thoroughly investigated, and that is Uh, the police failings and maybe Nancy Pelosi and her leadership failings in addressing the emerging evidence of a threat before January 6th. They didn't take the National Guard. Doesn't appear that they reacted appropriately to intelligence warnings from the FBI and other sectors. We've talked about that a lot with Cash Patel, two really great guests today to bring us up to speed on a very important matter. It does matter that a committee that is going to subpoena and refer people for prosecution, that it be properly convened. The rule of law matters in America. It'll be very interesting to see how Peter Navarro fares, whether the courts are willing to intervene in this dispute on this particular issue. All right, folks, that wraps it up. Another great opportunity to talk with some great people. I want to thank you for tuning in. Lots of great things to talk about on a daily basis. And before we get started, I want to give you a quick heads up from our folks at Donors Trust. They are a sponsor been around helping us before they're back again at it donors trust helps manage your charitable giving donors trust was built with listeners like you and me 
in mind. People who believe limited government constitutional rights are worth fighting for. If you already have a donor-advised fund, consider opening a rollover account. It can be done in three simple steps by calling my friends at Donors Trust. The Donors Trust team will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. Partner with the fund that matches your values. To learn more, download their prospectus at donorstrust.org slash just the news. That's donorstrust.org slash just the news to align your giving with your values. Just visit www.donorstrust.org slash just the news. All right, folks, that wraps up. Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite, you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe.